Well, we're resuming our series through the book of Romans today. Uh, We took a break back in July. We had guest preachers here with us the past four Sundays. And Craig and I spent those weeks doing some uh, focused study, focused planning, especially for the next year. And we're very thankful for that opportunity to uh, step away from the the week-in, week-out preaching of God's Word, to be able to devote some time to planning for future preaching of, of God's Word. But now it's time to jump back in to Romans. And it's been a while, so let me um, try to quickly get us back up to speed. Uh, what is Romans about? Romans is about the good news of God's grace, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul says right at the beginning, chapter 1, the gospel is God's power for salvation. And as he un- unpacks that gospel, he shows us that the gospel is God's power to deliver us from both the penalty of our sin and the power of our sin. The, the penalty of our sin, um, because we're, we're fallen sinners, we're under God's wrath. We deserve His judgment, but, but the good news that Romans presents to us is that God has delivered us from the penalty of our sin through the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul unpacks that especially in chapters 3, 4, and and 5. He shows us that Christ died as a sacrifice for our sins. He died in our place, satisfied God's wrath against our sins. And and now, uh, through faith in Christ, we receive the gift of righteousness. That wonderful news about justification by faith, apart from works. We receive the forgiveness of our sins, a a new righteous standing before God. The penalty has been paid. But that's not all. The Gospel also delivers us from the power of sin. And and Paul really gets at this in chapters 6, 7, and 8. We've been united to Christ by faith. Union with Christ, so important. Um, His death is our death. His resurrection is is our resurrection. And and what that means for us as Christian people is that we have died with Christ to sin's tyrannical rule over us. And we've been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life, Paul says. And then in in chapter 7, 1 through 6, and we looked at this, this was the final passage we looked at before we took a break, Paul says this new freedom we have in Christ, this new reality of life in Christ, united to Him, it involved dying to the law. We're no longer under the law, Christ says. We've died to it. We're no longer under the law's condemnation. Jesus has fulfilled it. And Paul says there in in the beginning of chapter 7, we now belong to Christ. We are counted righteous in Christ. We've been set free from the captivity of the law, he says. And the language he uses there in the opening of chapter 7 is very provocative. Very provocative. Especially verses 5 and 6. He says, the law of God stirred up sinful passions in sinful human hearts. He says, the law, God's law, produced death. And he says, we had to die to the law in order to live in the new way of the Spirit. And you have to realize, for in Paul's setting, 
Um, everything he's just said about the law, that would not sit right with a first century Jewish person. Uh, the, the Jewish Christians in the church at Rome, there were plenty of them, they would have been very uncomfortable with the things Paul is saying about the law. I mean, you, you can even compare it to the reading earlier from Psalm 119, which has a very positive perspective on God's law. And, and likewise, the, the Jewish Christians there in Rome, they had a high view of God's law. And, and by God's law, I mean Torah, the, the Mosaic law. They, they would say, rightly, Torah was God's gift to His people. And what do you mean, Paul, that, that it held us captive? What do you mean that we had to die to it and now we're free from it? You know, to them, it sounds like Paul's denigrating the Torah. It sounds like Paul's even implying that the Torah was, was somehow a bad thing. Maybe even a, a sinful thing. And so in our passage that we're looking at today, chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, Paul begins to clarify what he has said about the law. And you can see he even asks the question, is the law sinful? And he's going to answer that. Is there some defect in the law? And, And for the rest of the chapter, Paul talks about what the law can do and what the law can't do. And maybe you're sitting here uh, wondering what relevance this kind of first century debate over the law of Moses really has for you. I mean, you're, you're not first century Jewish people wrestling with questions about the Torah. You're 21st century people, Southern Californians. Maybe you're just trying to make it through another crazy week. What, is this, what does this have to do with you? Here's why this question about the law still matters to us as Christians today. You see, all of us as fallen human beings and, and, and even as people who are being renewed in Christ, we have a bent toward law. We, we have a tendency to put our hope in law-keeping. And for some of us that looks like um, you know, viewing the law as a ladder that leads up to heaven. You know, we, we climb the rungs by keeping the rules and by being good Christian people. That's how we climb up into God's good graces. You know, others of us might look at God's law, His commands, His rules as, as sort of like a bar of soap, you know, and we just, we scrub ourselves with it and it cleans us up and, and that's how we become good godly people. Now, we know, if we're well taught, we know as Christian people, that's not how things work. We know that relying on our own performance to make us right before God is, is a dead end. And Paul's been laying that out in the book of Romans. Even though we know that, we still gravitate towards self-reliance. We, we still were easily drawn away from reliance on the crucified Christ and we put our hope in law-keeping, thinking all along that if I just have the right rules, everything will be okay. And so we need to hear Paul's message here in in chapter 7. He's he's been saying some of these things already in Romans, but he really brings it to a a focus here in chapter 7. We need to hear his message, embrace his message, 
and, and remember his message. And if I could summarize what Paul is saying in chapter 7, I'd, I'd put it like this, just two short sentences. The law can't liberate us, only Christ can. The law can't liberate us, only Christ can. The law can't liberate us from sin's condemnation, and the law can't liberate us from sin's enslaving power. Only the crucified and risen Christ by the power of His Spirit can liberate us. That's what Paul wants us to understand. And so this morning, we're looking at chapter 7, verses 7-12. through 12. And I'm going to read it in a moment. That's on page 943 in the Pew Bibles, page 9 in your bulletin. And as we look at these verses, just two simple points. Number one, what the law can do. And number two, what the law can't do. What the law can do and what it can't do. So let me read the passage for us and then I'll pray and then we'll dive in. So Romans 7, beginning in verse 7, we read, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, as we come to this passage, uh, a a confusing passage at times, uh, would you give us clarity? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Uh, your message for us here in chapter 7, and would you help us to all the more put our hope and trust and all of our confidence in Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Savior. We ask in His name and for His sake. Amen. Well, let's begin by talking about what the law can do. What the law can do. You can see there in verse 7, Paul poses that question, is the law sin? And You know, what he said already in Romans, particularly the beginning of chapter 7, what he said about the law, it it could give that impression that there's something something bad about God's law, especially what Paul says in in chapter 7, verse 5, that the law provokes sinful desires within fallen human hearts. So Paul poses that question, and then he gives a very brief answer, and he does this all throughout Romans. By no means. In other words, that's his way of saying, not a chance. Is the law sinful? Absolutely not. It's an emphatic denial. Paul's saying there's nothing wrong with the law in itself. You just have to understand what it's designed to do. And so he he goes on to give a longer answer now. Uh, Three things the law can do. Number one... The first thing the law can do, it can expose sin. 
The law exposes sin. He says, verse 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. You know, Paul has already said in Romans that the law defines sin. It, it defines sin as transgression, a violation of, of God's law. It, it gives moral clarity. It says this is right and this is wrong. And it shows sin's true character as, as rebellion against our Creator. But Paul is saying here, the law also exposes sin in us. It doesn't just tell us about sin, it exposes sin in us. And he gives this example here of, of coveting. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And, and you should know, he's, he's quoting from the Tenth Commandment that prohibits coveting on um, all kinds of things. What is coveting? Um, coveting is, is more than simply desiring something. I think sometimes we, we misunderstand. Uh, God created us with the ability to desire good things, and this prohibition isn't against desire in itself. Coveting is a distorted desire, a disordered desire. Coveting can look like a desire for something um, evil, something that's forbidden, or it can look like just inordinate desire, a, a misplaced desire, even for something good, even for something that's not forbidden. And the Bible calls that idolatry, putting a created thing in the place that only God should occupy. And so Paul says, if the law had not said you shall not covet, I would not have known that those desires within me were sin. And so he's saying the law exposes sin. You, you can think of it like a flashlight. You know, if you walk into a room at night, the lights are out, you can't see what's in the room. And then you turn the flashlight on and, and shine it in the corner and you can see what's in the room. It, it exposes. Or another picture, and, and we've talked about this before, the law functions like a mirror. Um, maybe you've had this experience. You're, you're sharing a meal with a friend and um, you notice they keep staring at your mouth and they won't really make eye contact with you. They're just kind of fixed on your mouth. And then later in the day, you know, you figure out why. You look in a mirror and you see your reflection and you realize there's this big, ugly, green piece of food stuck right in between your teeth. Um, that's what your friend was staring at. And you had no idea that it was there until you saw your reflection in the mirror and that's the way the law works. It comes to us with its commands, with its prohibitions, and it shows us, it exposes the sin within us. That's something the law can do. And um, real quickly notice, Paul is speaking in the first person here. He's, he does this throughout the chapter. Um, it's not something he does uh, very often, at least not in this intensely personal way here um, in these verses he talks about a past experience starting in verse 14 and, and through the end of the chapter he talks about a present struggle in, in very anguished terms and and you might know there's all kinds of debate about what's going on here in Romans 7 who is Paul talking about who is he describing um, PhDs are written on that question whole books are written 
on that question, and you might be sitting there thinking, well, the answer seems pretty obvious. I mean, he's talking about himself. He says, I, I, I. Uh, that's typically how the word I works. Um, but actually, it's not so obvious, and that's why there's debate. And just to uh, disappoint you for a moment, I don't want to spend a bunch of time on that today. Um, I hope to talk about it more next week. Who is Paul describing here? What's going on? What's important for us to see today is, is what Paul keeps hammering home. What the law can do, and, and then ultimately what it can't do. So first, he says the law can expose sin. Second, he says the second thing the law can do, the law stirs up sin. It stirs up sin. Look again at verse 8. He says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. He says, That that commandment, you shall not covet, came. I heard it. And the result was all this evil desire, covetous desire, was inflamed. He's, he's expanding on what he said earlier about chapter 5, the law producing sinful passions in fallen human hearts. You know, this, this idea that Paul's describing here about the law stirring up sin, it's the whole forbidden fruit idea. You know, a, a person might not have a conscious desire to do something, until someone tells them, don't do that. You know how it works. We've used the example. You see the, the sign that says, wet paint, don't touch. What do you want to do? Well, let me touch it. Let me see what happens. Or, uh, you know, uh, uh, wet cement, don't, don't stay away. And Well, let me just write my name in there. Or in the library, the sign, you know, um, silence, please no talking. And you're like, I want to see how much talking I can get away with. It's just this, it's something within us that reacts to being told, no, <laughs> we want to push the boundaries. Um, St. Augustine, a pastor and theologian from the 4th and 5th centuries, he uh, gave a very personal example of this in his book, Confessions. Some of you have probably read it. And he talks about how when he was about the age of 16 or so, he ran around with a a group of, of young men that he called a gang of naughty adolescents. And um, he says that one night they were out roaming the streets, getting into trouble, and he saw a tree, a pear tree, in, um, on somebody's property, on private property. And he walks over to the tree. It's loaded, down, it's loaded with fruit. He walks over to the tree and he, he shakes it and a, and a bunch of pears fall to the ground and he, he scoops them up and runs. He, he stole Somebody else's property. And then he, he tells how he didn't actually eat any of the fruit. In fact, he threw them to a, a herd of pigs. And in the book, which he wrote um, years later after his conversion, he explained his motive that evening. And he says it wasn't because he was hungry. It's not like Augustine was a, a poor boy on the street just starving and trying to get some sustenance. He says he had a home. He had food. He simply wanted to take pleasure in doing something that was forbidden. And he uses that to discuss the dynamic of the fallen human heart. He simply wanted to do something because it was forbidden. And Paul's saying that's the way the law works. When the law 
confronts a fallen human heart, it provokes sin. It it stirs up this tornado of sin in a human heart. But, Paul says, the, the real culprit, just to be clear, isn't the law, it's sin. Uh, that, that's why I call this sermon, How Sin Hijacks the Law. Paul says the sin, this uh, evil power, you notice he says sin, singular, not sins, plural. He's talking, he's personifying sin as this malevolent power. He says it, it seizes the law. It's opportunistic and it, it, it uses the law as a, a bridgehead to work out its own evil purposes. It takes God's good and, and holy law and, and twists it and uses it to, to stir up the very desires the law forbids. And so what can the law do? Paul says the law exposes sin. The law stirs up sin. The third thing he says is the law condemns sin. The law condemns sin. Paul goes on in in verses 9-11, to he describes the law as an instrument of death. An instrument of death. And and death here um, means more than just physical death. More than just the cessation of physical life. This is spiritual death. Separation from God. Death as condemnation for sin. For example, verse 9, he says, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And then verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. The law functioned like an instrument of death, Paul says. And, And again, for the moment, leave aside the question of whether this is Paul's personal experience and when this might have happened. His focus is on what the law does. God's law, Paul says, kills. It kills. It promises life, but it deals out death. And and you think about it, what does Paul mean uh, the law promised life? It did promise life. Uh, You have places like Leviticus 18.5, do this and live. Deuteronomy 4, do this and live. And live. The, the law, in a sense, promised life as a reward for perfect obedience to its demands. The problem is, the law was given to sinful people. Israel receiving the law at Sinai was in Adam and therefore fallen and sinful, just like the rest of the world. Just like us. The law was given to people who are already in the grip of sin's power. People who could not give perfect obedience. And and Paul says in verse 11 that that sin exploits that situation. The the law comes with this promise of life, but but fallen human beings are in the grip of sin, and and sin exploits that situation, he says, to deceive and kill. You see, sin deceives us into thinking that we could actually fulfill the law's demands as as broken sinners that somehow we're going to be able to do what God requires of us in such a way that we receive the reward of life. Sin twists our thinking and and encourages us toward self-reliance. But of course, we don't obey perfectly, do we? 
Not even close. Um, we break God's law every day, and, and here's the law promising life, and, and we're breaking it, and it has absolutely no power to change us, to transform us into law keepers. The law just stands there with its condemnation, slaying us, killing us in our sins. And so Paul tells us about what the law can do as he answers this question, is the law sin? And you can see his conclusion, verse 12, no, the law is not sin. Uh, he, he makes clear the real culprit in this whole mess is, is sin itself. The law is not sinful. He says God's law is actually holy. It's righteous. It's good. problem isn't the law. The problem is the sinful human heart. Sin hijacks the law, Paul wants us to see it. It turns God's good and holy and righteous law into an instrument of death. Sin exercises its death-dealing reign through the law. And so Paul shows us here in, in these verses what the law can do. It exposes sin, it stirs up sin, it condemns sin, and he's very clear the law itself is good, it's holy, it's right. It's given by a holy God. It reflects His holy character. And, and you might think, okay, well then, Paul's expecting us to just jump for joy about the law and throw a big Torah party after the church because the law is holy and it's good and it, it does all these necessary things. But that's not what Paul expects. He doesn't say, hey, look how great the law is. You should put your hope and trust in it. That's not his point, actually. His bigger purpose in chapter 7 is not only to defend the holy character of God's law, but to make clear what the law cannot do. He's going to unpack this more in in next week's passage, but I just want to pause here and think together, what can't the law do? In in light of everything Paul has said about what the law can do, it's very important to understand what he doesn't say. In other words, what the law can't do. Do So that's the second point this morning, what the law can't do. And two things in particular that the law can't do. And um, this should come as no surprise to you. If you've been here for Romans 1 through 6, or if you've been at Grace Bible Church for any amount of time, I hope you hear these two points I'm about to make and you think, well, I already knew that. Um, You're not telling me anything I don't already know. And and I really hope that's, that's your response. It's good to be reminded of things we already know. Paul's writing to Christians who know these things that he's talking about, but we need reminders. I mean, Peter in his letters talks about the ministry of reminder. I'm going to keep reminding you of the truths of the gospel as long as I have breath. Um, You know, we need reminders, especially when it comes to this issue of law and gospel. We're so quick to forget about grace. So quick to run back to the law and think that the law has life-giving power. And so, what can't the law do? Two things. It can't justify and it can't sanctify. The law can't justify you. In other words, the law can't make you right with God. It can't give you a righteous standing before a righteous God. The law can't forgive your sin. In other words, it can't save you. 
The, the law can tell you God requires this, but it can't, it's very proficient at telling you what to do, but it can't enable you to do it. In fact, as we've seen, it can show you how far short you fall, the, the mirror function. But that's all it can do. It can show you your sin, can show you that you fall short of God's standard, but it can't clean you up or make you acceptable to God. And you know that. If, if you're a Christian person here, you know that. And I know that you know that. And, and Paul has said it how many times in Romans so far? You might be thinking, man, Paul just beats the same drum over and over and over again. And he does. Because we need to hear it. We know we're saved by grace, not by our law-keeping. But how often do we as Christian people slip back into a performance mentality? Uh, do you know what I mean? A performance mentality. We, we, we know we're saved by grace, but then we base our personal relationship with God on our performance, not His grace. You know, and the way we think is, if I've performed well today, God will like me and accept me. And if I haven't done so well today, then I better try harder tomorrow because at some point God's going to get tired of me and kick me out onto the street. You know, it's the whole performance treadmill that Jerry Bridges wrote about. Maybe you read this in, in Transforming Grace. He says, we're saved by grace, but we live by the sweat of our performance. Uh, we've forgotten about grace. You know, can you relate to that? The, the whole performance mentality. Maybe, you know, you get to the end of the day and you're tired and there's still a hundred things on your to-do list and you start wondering why you can't get more done in a day and, and you feel like a failure and then, and then you remember that you even forgot to pray that morning, you haven't read your Bible in weeks, uh, you have no idea what the sermon was about uh, the previous Sunday and, and you just start to, to spiral and the condemning self-talk starts up. Do you, do you know what I mean? Does this happen to any of you? Um, you just start telling yourself, I'm a total loser. How can I even call myself a Christian? Um, I know everyone sees right through me, and it's not just them. You know, God, uh, how could He even accept me like this? Um, he must be so tired of me. I, he's, he's not going to put up with me any longer. I, I know it. You know, I just don't measure up. He must be so upset with me. That's, that's one side of the performance treadmill. But there's another deceptive side, and it sounds like this. Well, I'm just knocking it out of the park. I mean, I spent an hour praying this morning, an hour meditating on God's Word, and then I went into work, and I just gave a killer presentation. My coworkers were so impressed. And then on the way home, you know, I stopped and I fed the poor, and then I went over to the clinic and I donated blood, and, you know, it's just... You know, I know God's smiling on me because I'm doing so well. See, the problem is you can only run on a treadmill for so long. I mean, I wouldn't know. I hate treadmills. But <laughs> it's so boring. You know, it's much more enjoyable to run outside. Okay. Um, the problem is you can't run forever on the treadmill. Eventually, your legs get tired and they give out. And, and you either try to keep going and you trip and fall and, and fall on your face and look like a fool in front of everyone at the gym. Or, before you get to that point, you step off the treadmill and give up. 
I mean, the, the performance treadmill never ends well. And if you're a Christian here today, uh, maybe you've realized you've been, been running on that performance treadmill. And if that's the case, um, I, I want you to know you don't have to stay there. You don't have to keep running on that treadmill. You, you can step off the treadmill and come to Jesus. We come to Jesus not once as Christians. We come to Jesus over and over and over again. You can come to Jesus and he's got some uh, grace electrolytes that, that you need to refresh you and renew you. Uh, you can rest in Jesus rather than trying to impress Jesus with your performance. Jesus has already run the race. Uh, God accepts you in him. God is smiling on you in Christ, not because of your performance, not because you fed the poor on, the, on your way home from work, but because of Jesus' performance. And if you're not a Christian, I, I want you to understand that the message of Christianity is not obey the rules and God will accept you. That, that is far from what Christianity says. That's far from good news. Christianity says we can't do it. We can't obey the rules well enough. We can't fulfill the law perfectly. We could never earn God's approval. We're too bound up in sin. And Christianity says Christ has measured up. He obeyed perfectly. And and through faith in Him, we receive a righteous standing. We receive God's approval as a gift. That's called grace. That's what we mean by grace. So, the law can't make you right with God. It can't keep you right. It can't keep you in good, on good footing with God. Only the crucified and risen Christ can. That's the first thing the law can't do. There's a second thing. The law can't sanctify you. It can't justify you, and the law can't sanctify you. Uh, again, the law can expose your sin. The law can stir up sin. The law can condemn your sin, but it can't transform you. It can't change you. That's what sanctification is is about. The process of of growing in Christ's likeness, being transformed, being renewed. The law cannot do that for you. It wasn't designed to. Only God's grace in Christ can transform broken sinners. And again, you know this. We know this as Christian people, at least at some level, at an intellectual level, we, we know that. But, but we still hope, you know, somewhere in the back of our minds, we're still hoping that rules will do the trick. You know, if I have the right rules, and I'm really diligent about following the right rules, I will be in good shape. You know, I'll keep my distance from sin. These rules will protect me from getting mixed up in in things that I I don't need to be mixed up in. Um, I won't even maybe struggle that much. I won't mess up. I'll be good to go. Just give me the right rules. Tell me what to do. And you know, previous generations of Christians, they, they had their rules. You know, don't drink alcohol, uh, don't smoke cigarettes, don't chew tobacco, um, don't play cards. There's a lot of don'ts. Don't, don't go to the movie theater. Um, definitely no dancing. The, the devil's in the jukebox. And, and some of you lived through that, probably. And it didn't work, did it? Um, you know, 
Maybe today we've updated the rules a little bit. You know, movies are okay. You can go to the movie theater, but only if, you know, the film is rated, whatever. Um, But the rules can't transform anyone, can they? Mere law-keeping can't make you holy. It might give the appearance of holiness, but it can't make you holy at the heart level where it truly matters. Rules alone can't do that. And, you know, as it's been mentioned already, today's Promotion Sunday, where we're, um, you know, celebrating our, our kids' ministry, Grace Kids. The kids are moving up to their new classes. Uh, we have a party after church today for the kids. And, and I've got kids and parents on my mind. And, you know, those of us who are parents or, or grandparents, you know, we, we want our kids to do well, right? It, we really want them to turn out okay. We, we want them to stay out of trouble. We want them to follow Jesus. And we want them to stay out of trouble, right? We really don't want them to get mixed up in, in the wrong things. And so, what do we do? Well, we, we teach them right and wrong. We teach them the difference. We, we establish expectations for their behavior. We, we set up different rules about, you know, all kinds of things. What they can watch, what they can listen to, um, where they can go, with whom they can go. And, and we enforce consequences for breaking the rules, right? And, and in one sense, all of that is good and necessary. Uh, um, kids and teenagers and, and budding young adults, they need guidance. They need boundaries. God didn't intend for children to just figure out how to do life on their own. That's why he gives them parents. And, uh, you know, the idea being that the parents have some more experience and more wisdom. And some of us are probably thinking, hmm, I'm not sure how that's working out. But um, he gave kids parents to help them navigate life and to do things like teach right and wrong. But we parents, we, we tend to put all our hope in the rules, right? If I put together the right recipe of rules for my kids, they're, they're going to turn out the way that I want. Just got to figure out what that recipe is, you know, how many ingredients, and then, you know, the, the result is guaranteed. And then when we see our kids struggling or uh, with something, or, or they begin to test boundaries as kids do as they get older, um, what's our solution? Well, I just got to give them more rules. You know, I, I didn't give them enough, or I didn't give them the right ones. And, and then as you know, if, if, you, if you've raised kids, it, it eventually backfires, right? Just this Rules, 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 it backfires. That dynamic that Paul was describing in, in verse 8 of the law stirring up uh, sin. Your, you, your children, the sin in your child's heart, it, it reacts to just nonstop rules and it, and it hijacks those rules and stirs up rebellion and, and eventually it can lead to a, a, a child just saying, I want nothing to do with your system of rules and all that it represents. So what should we do? You know, um, well, just get rid of the rules, right? Well, not exactly. And, and Paul, people in Paul's day were proposing the same thing. Let's just go out and sin so that more grace comes to us. And he dealt with that in chapter 6. By no means, he says. Um, no, we don't necessarily need to get rid of the rules. Good parents establish wise rules. But rules are not enough. And, and we have a lot of trouble holding those two concepts together. 
Good parents establish wise rules, but rules are not enough. You know, you think of the book of Proverbs. And in, in the Proverbs, you know, there's a, a path that leads to life and there's a path that leads to destruction. And, and our kids desperately need to know the difference. They, they, they need instruction, but they need more. And, and it shouldn't surprise us. We need more. As, as the parents, as the adults, as Christian people, we need more than just instruction. They need to see the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion is all about the rules. I obey God in order to get Him to accept me. They need to see that Christianity is not just a system of rules. It's about the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace that liberates from from both the penalty of our sin and the power of our sin. You see, our children need to know not only what they ought to do, but that there's grace for when they mess up, just like when we mess up. They need to know There's grace for when they take a detour from that path that leads to life. You know, they need to know that God doesn't expect them to do life and travel on that path of life in their own strength. You see, we we not only want to tell them what that path is, but but show them that it's grace that strengthens us. It's, It's grace that transforms people. It's grace that will grow them into godly Jesus followers. And one of the best ways to do that is just to to show our children that we need that same grace. You know, yeah, we might be in a position of authority and and giving them the rules and, and the instruction and the guidance, but we mess up too, and we need God's grace. Uh, we don't have the resources within ourselves to do life on our own. Um, we are just as dependent on the grace of the gospel as our children, and, and they need to know that and hear that and see that. So Paul here, beginning in this passage we've looked at, and he's going he's to say it some more in chapter 7, He wants us to see the law's total inability to liberate us. Yes, the law is holy. Yes, God's law is good and righteous. But it cannot save you. It cannot transform you. It cannot justify or sanctify. And so just as we close here, where does that leave us? Um, where it leaves us exactly where Paul wants us, uh, running back to the gospel, running back to Jesus, putting all of our hope in Him, trusting in Him, marveling at our union with Him, and and relying on the power of His life-giving Spirit who indwells us and has raised us to live in newness of life with Christ. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, would you give us an appetite for your grace? Would you help us to give up on on our efforts to get you to smile by our performance? Would you help us to live in in just conscious Uh, dependence on your grace, receiving your grace, being strengthened by your grace, rejoicing in your grace. Would you help us, 
Lord, to be uh, a community, as we, we say we want to be as a church, a, a community that is gospel-centered, a community that's built on the gospel, that embodies the gospel, that, that knows and loves this wonderful message of, of grace in Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.